This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art. You are listening to WQED Voice of the Arts podcast. I'm Emily Bruner, and today we have writer, journalist, and educator Paul Salinci. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for being here inviting me. Of course. So you talk about in your new memoir, Sondheim and Me, recalling a musical genius, that the first Sondheim musical you ever saw was Follies at the Winter Garden Theater, and that ignited your interest in his works. Um, What about Follies was so inspiring to you? Okay. Do you mind if I read a little bit? Of course. I'd love it. Okay. Well, that because um, that's that sums it up on why this why this changed my life actually. Okay. Um, here we go. Um, across Broadway, across Broadway, there was something that looked promising. The Winter Garden Theater's marquee announced a show called Follies with an odd portrait of a woman with an ominous crack down her face. Still, reviewers were quoted as saying it was breathtaking and incredible, so I bought a ticket. The program told me it was produced and directed by Hal Prince, that the book was by James Goldman, and the music and lyrics were by Stephen Sondheim. I didn't know that name then. When the lights went down and the music came up and tall showgirls wearing immense headpieces descended the staircase on the stage, I knew I had never seen a musical like this before. I was mesmerized. The huge cast, the aging movie stars, the spectacular set and costumes, the lush orchestrations, the movement so continuous that it seemed like a film, it was all magical. And then there was a score of jaunty dances, pastiche numbers, and aching ballads that revealed the characters' inner lives in sung monologues and dialogues. Unlike so many others, this was a musical for adults. There were so many layers to follies that even now it's difficult to explain. On the surface, it was a story of two couples attending a reunion of showgirls who had been follies reviews. But more than that, it was a story of love and loss, past and present, failure and redemption, youth and aging, missed opportunities and unforgivable mistakes. In short, it explored the follies of our lives. Wow, that that last bit, the follies of our lives, that was most impactful when I read that. Um, yeah. Totally agreed. Oh, wow. Have you ever seen Follies? I have not. I have not had the fortune. <laughs> well, it's not produced very often for because it's a very show, very hard show to produce and get it right. Yes, yes. I think that one production that you saw um, definitely got it right uh, from what I've heard. Yes. Um, Your first contact with the composer was in April of 1984, um, and you wrote to Sondheim looking for information about a musical he wrote in 1955 called Saturday Night, and he replied. Um, What was your reaction to him replying, especially given the time that he replied? Yeah, you know, I I was started researching uh, Sondheim's works after I had seen Follies, uh, because I saw Follies in 1972, and so this was a few years later. And I, at that point, I was interested in a show called Saturday Night that Sondheim wrote when he was 25 years old, and it would have been his first musical on Broadway. Unfortunately, the producer died, and so the whole thing was scrapped. But I knew that there were songs that existed and a script, 
So I wrote to him and asked him about it. And to my surprise, he wrote back. I mean, I didn't really expect him to write back, but he did. And he said uh, something to the effect that it, it helped boost his ego that I wrote to him. And I couldn't imagine why that would be. And it wasn't until I read um, James Lapine's book last year that I that I realized that the timing of my note, uh, because this was a time when Sondheim and Lapine were putting together Sunday in the Park with George, mm -hmm. and they were having terrible time with the second act. Sondheim had to write two new songs, two crucial new songs for the second act, and he was delaying and delaying, and everybody was getting upset. And the, the stagehands were predicting that the show would close on opening night. And so he was under a terrible amount of pressure. But finally, uh, he wrote one song for the second act for the second act. And then he wrote another song for the second act. And at that same day, the same day, he wrote to me and said, wrote that note. Uh, but what was especially um, uh, unusual about the whole thing was that not only did he write a note, but he enclosed a cassette tape of the songs from Saturday night. And this is a rare uh, tape. Uh, it was made during a backers audition in which they were seeking money for Saturday night. And, uh, you know, I, it was just incredible that he would take the time at this point when everything was so mad about him, uh, around him, and uh, send me this cassette tape. But it's, it's an example of how generous he was, how kind he was, how um, how he wanted people to be to answer to answer their questions and to be satisfied with the with the answers that he gave. Yeah, yeah, that's that's incredible. Especially, I mean, <laughs> I, I, if I would try to write a song um, in two days and I uh, decided to also spend some time to reply to a response, um, I think I would be stressed for yes. sure. It's quite incredible. Yes quite demonstrative of his uh as you said his uh his uh generosity for sure which is amazing right yeah yeah um and you so after that point you decided kind of a couple years later to be the founder and editor of the sondheim review which is the only american journal dedicated to the late composer um the current composer at that point um and his work over the years why did you decide to start writing this magazine well, uh, I had collected all this stuff. I was really into Sondheim. Um, maybe, well, I, I really was. I, I, I collected a lot of uh, tapes and, and records and uh, books, and I read a lot. I, I went to his shows wherever I could. And so I, I, as I'm a journalist, I should explain. And I worked at the Milwaukee Journal for a long time. And I was an editor there at that point. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book about uh, Stephen Sondheim because there hadn't been a, a biography at that point or, or an assessment. And so I looked at all my stuff and I said, I can't write a book. I don't have the, I don't know what it would be about. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. Uh, who would I, you know, I was working, uh, family. So I put that idea aside and then I thought, uh, of a newsletter that the Kurt Weill 
uh, Foundation puts out twice a year, and it's really a good newsletter. It includes reviews and interviews and essays about Kurt Weil's work, and I'm really uh, into Kurt Weil as well. And I thought, okay, I'll write a, I'll publish a newsletter, and and, um, and then the idea grew and grew, and uh, it became more than a newsletter, but a quarterly magazine. And um, you know, I, when I look back at it now, I can't imagine doing it at this point. Um, how in the world did I have the chutzpah to put that to to, uh, to think that I could do it? And yet I did it, not by myself, of course. I had uh, a very good staff. I recruited people from around the country, and I had a very good designer. I had a good printer. I had a good business manager who took care of all the advertising and circulation. And so um, we put together, it took, I had the idea, I think, in January, and uh, we came out in June, which was pretty fast for uh, a new magazine. Yeah, yeah. And, and speaking about that, you published it in June of 1994, um, right. and that was a month after Sondheim's uh, new work, Passion, had opened. And right. that first issue featured Donna Murphy and J.R. Shea on the cover. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Passion and that first and second issue? Sure. Uh, it was 94, by the way. 94. Uh, 94. Yeah, uh, that, that, it came out just as Passion was opening. And um, before I published, I, I didn't have to have Sondheim's permission, but I thought I better. And so I wrote a note, <laughs> a letter saying what we were going to do. I told them it was not going to be a fanzine. It was not going to be a scholarly journal. It was really going to be a journalistic a magazine in which we would report on news and do reviews and interviews and essays and, and uh, that sort of thing. And to my surprise, he called me one Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Hi, this is Steve Sondheim. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I had never talked to him before. Uh, and so uh, this was a little breathtaking. And um but so he, I don't know if he really understood what the magazine was was going to be about, even after I explained it. But finally, he said, "Oh well, okay." And so, okay. But he really wanted to talk about passion because he was working on it then. And passion is a very unusual musical. It's it's really pretty dark. It's about a woman who is sort of deformed and, and ugly. And she obsesses over a young uh, soldier. This is set in Italy. And uh, the soldier is having an affair with a beautiful woman. And so there's this triangle. But um, the, um, the, finally, the soldier succumbs to the woman. And there is, it's a story of, um, of, of love and obsession and illness and uh, really a lot of themes in it. It's based on a movie called Passione di More, which is an Italian movie, which is also very dark. And sometime in that phone call asked if me if I had seen it. Uh, maybe he recognized my last name. As, and I had seen a lot of Italian movies, but I had not seen that one. Well, a week later in the mail came a videotape of Passione di Amore. This was before DVDs. So that's another example of how generous that man was and how kind. And uh, he really wanted me to, to know about uh, the movie 
as a basis for his musical. Yeah, yeah, basis for his musical. And then eventually you wrote about it um, yes. in the first issue, which was great. Yes. And uh, he, after that first issue, he likes to send you like little notes, like End of Nations, is, I think is what you called it. And that you published in the second issue as well. Yes, he, he had a lot of comments about the first issue. Uh, he found little teeny things that that, uh, that I would not have recognized uh, as, as the editor, but he found them. And he told them, and uh, and later, when somebody had wrote in and said, "Why are you know, in effect saying why are you making all these all these uh, judgments and corrections in the magazine?" And Sondheim wrote back and said he did it because he wants this to be accurate, and he wants uh, scholars to to when they read this to understand everything there is to know. And that that says something else about Sondheim and that he he really was concerned about his legacy, that he didn't want any errors uh, of facts in in um, when scholars wrote about his work. And, and, they, and he knew that the Sondheim Review would be a source for scholars which was flattering to me because because that said that he respected the magazine very much. Yeah, 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 and I, I, um, to to this day, I think the Sondheim Review is definitely used um, multiple many times, very scholarly. Yes, reviews. I think so. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so this book also included a sixty-four page colored picture kind of insert that includes letters Sondheim wrote to you, pictures of different productions, magazine covers, various artwork. Um, why did you decide to include this in your book? Uh, um, that was That's very interesting. And about midway when I was writing, I approached my publisher and I said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if in the middle of the book we had like 10 or 12 pages of photos? And he immediately said, no, we're having 64 pages. I mean... <laughs> He, he blows me away sometime. It was his idea to do do that insert. It was his idea to do the chronology. There's a there's a 23 page in uh, a chronology of Sondheim's life from birth to death, and with all kinds of details in it. Uh, it was a bitch. <laughs> it was a bitch to put together. I know. <laughs> I um, bet it was. If I can say that on radio. Um, it it but uh, the, the designer did a really nice job of putting together the insert of photos and covers and notes um, and that that it, it, I was very impressed. I think I think if uh, the, all of that material, by the way, is from the Sondheim reviews uh, that that I had, yeah. so it was accessible. But uh, it was all. It's also a record, I think, of that decade in which I was editor of the Sondheim Review and all the productions that were uh, done, the revivals and the productions around the world, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, and people, I think people will find it very very interesting. I I did for sure, and specifically because of one picture. Um, there is a picture of. Carnegie Mellon's uh, company, they did it in 2002. It's right here. Okay, yes. Yeah, and uh, I'm a current student at Carnegie Mellon, and I found this immediately fascinating. Uh, um, and they, it seems like they did a gender switch. Yeah. Um, yes, with uh, Marty becomes, uh, or Martha doesn't, is now Marty. Um, do you remember that production at all? 
I, I remember the picture and I remember the incident because I asked Sondam about how, how could you allow that to happen? Because, um, you know, uh, and he said, well, it was only done in, 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 uh, at a university, so I allowed it to, to happen. But of course, uh, in two, well, in the last three or four years, there's been a gender switch in, in company in which Bobby, with, with a Y, becomes Bobby, i.e., a woman. And it changes the focus for the whole story. And Sondheim approved that when it was done in England and then, then when it transferred to Broadway. Mm. And uh, it was a huge hit, a very, very big hit that way. So I think I think it also uh, indicates that Sondheim was able to adjust to times and to make uh, concessions and to uh, see what the, what uh, would work at one time when it wouldn't work at another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it made me question: Did your journal cover academic uh, productions of Sondheim's work as well, in addition to like off Broadway and like kind of traveling oh, stuff? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we we did uh, university productions and college productions and wow. Uh, oh. We did. <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but we did some. Uh, we we were, did a little story on high school production. Can you imagine high, high, school. high schools doing follies? Oh well, no! <laughs> well, it was news, so we had to cover it. Um, but yes, uh, we 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 covered the map. Wow! Wow! Yeah, and and when they did Into the Woods Junior, I'm sure. Oh, wow! Yeah. <laughs> um. So, and in, in in speaking of uh, Pittsburgh and kind of Pittsburgh things, I also re researched that in 1992-1993, uh, uh, Sondheim received um, an award from the Pittsburgh CLO, um, which was in downtown near the Benedum, um, and they awarded him their Richard Rogers Award for Excellent in Musical Theater. And I remember in your book, you kind of talked about his visit to Southern Methodist uh, University in Dallas to accept a, a similar award um, and had a week of sessions with students. And you covered that event for the journal Um how was that experience? I think was that the first time you saw him in person? Yeah, that was that. Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen Sondheim in person, um, and it was uh, it was a wonderful week. Um, the and Sondheim again made himself so accessible to the students. He had uh, several uh, programs in which students would just uh, sit and ask questions, and they asked some great questions. And, uh, you know, I was there taking notes and practically filled the whole issue with all of the information that he gave. Uh, some, some surprising things that he said at that point, some of the things that he said about his own shows, which uh, surprised me that he would be that frank about them. Yeah, yeah. And you uh, you put all those uh, kind of like questionnaires, interviews yes. um, in the book as well. Right. Yeah. And he talked about, I think he talked about uh, country music and how that was his uh, kind <laughs> of favorite musical genre. Yeah, that was that was a surprise. Do you like country music? Yes. Yeah. Um, because it's simple, and you know, uh, but he would he would confess that he would not write a country song. Yeah, that was surprising as well. You like it, but you won't write it. <laughs> um, and in addition to this memoir, you've also written a bunch of fiction books, um, all about Tuscany, which you have a deep connection to with your family. After writing fiction for so long, why did you decide to write this memoir? Well, uh, I decided to write the memoir because uh, after Sondheim died last November, uh, I hadn't thought about the Sondheim Review very much since uh, since I 
uh, left the uh, the editorship in, in 2004 because I got so involved in writing uh, fiction about Tuscany. I got, uh, I wrote 10 books. Uh, I'm just enchanted with Tuscany because both of the sides of my family are from the same little village near Lucca. Oh. Anyway, uh, I, when Sondheim died, I went through the magazines and I went through the notes that he had sent and I thought, you know, there's a story here and there's not only a story here, but there's a book here. And so I started putting together um, the, the narrative of how I became interested in Sondheim and how I founded the Sondheim Review and uh, and then went into the issues for, uh, and there were, um, there were a number of revivals and there were five revivals during that decade. He, and Passion opened during that decade. Saturday Night finally had its world premiere in London during that decade. Yeah. And all the while during that time, he was writing a show that began as Wise Guys and then ended up as Roadshow. And it had um, lots of problems and uh, got produced in Chicago and then in Washington, but got very mixed reviews to put it kindly. And um, and and he was still still working on it, and uh, it was interesting because he was so excited about it. When we talked on the phone, uh, he would go on and on about the changes that were being made and how how this would improve the story and how to improve the the whole show, and the work that he was doing with John Whiteman and changing it, and it was um, it was sort of like. George of Sunday in the Park with George that he really had to finish the hat. He really had to complete. He was so absorbed in this work that everything else was put aside, and he was just mm -hmm. going to finish this. Uh, so that's that was that was fascinating to me as well. Yeah, it's such such a large, vast amount of information that is covered in this book. Um, and and you talk about how your correspondence with him really you know opened up and how he wrote about the journal and you wrote about the journal and just so much information. Um, and he he would always send you you know addendums and stuff. And do you think that like after writing this book, if he were still here, um, would he have any comments on your book? Um, I think he would. I think he would. Uh... I think he would. I don't know if he'd say he'd like it, but I think he would. I think he would appreciate its honesty, uh, and that I report on on him and uh, his his uh, reactions to things that were in the in the magazine and therefore in the book, uh, and uh, including some of the things that he. He might not be want to have remembered, but I think that he would be honest enough to know that that this was a journalistic piece and journalists write the truth, the facts, you know, and that's what we did. Yeah, yeah, you certainly did. Um, there's so much more to talk about and we do not have enough time to talk about it. But is there anything else you'd like to discuss today? Um, let's see. Uh, well, I think I think the book uh yeah, there will be other books as well, I'm sure. Uh, and I think what is different about this one is um, my 
sub another subtitle for the book for for me is it, it puts a human face on a legend. Hmm. Uh, he comes across, I think, as as a person who has foibles and who um, who who uh, that may not have been reported elsewhere. I I think what pe people who have read it said I didn't know that I didn't know that. Uh, there was there were there are so many personal in, information in the book. Not that we talked about his personal life, but there was a, his personal reaction to his work, and that I think is is um, going to be last for a long time. Indeed, indeed. Paul Salinci, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Paul Salinci's new memoir, Sondheim and Me, Revealing a Musical Genius, it was about his personal and working relationship with the great late composer Stephen Sondheim and his work on the journal, The Sondheim Review. The book is out now in hardcover and on Kindle. I highly re recommend this book to read. It is an easy book to read, interesting book full of interviews, quotes, letters, a 64-page insert that we talked about, a great book to read any time of the day and any time of the year. You are listening to WQED's Voice of the Arts podcast. This Voice of the Arts podcast is made possible thanks to the Carnegie Museum of Art.